Um, we are in a series in the book of Judges, and as we have uh, moved through the book of Judges, we're, we're entering into two chapters that are very unique in the telling of the stories. Um, there are um, eight judges that we're going to focus on that are kind of the bigger stories. Last week, we focused on one of the smaller stories. Um, but as we, as we move through the bigger stories, the one that's in Judges chapter 4 and 5 is set up in a really unique way. Um, but it's not uncommon to you. So let me see if I can introduce it to you. I'm going to do a better job introducing it next week because I have a great illustration, I think, for uh, how this works. But uh, let me just uh, appeal to people from my generation, and actually this will be the new generation uh, soon. Um, The story, West Side Story, it was um, a Broadway, it was a book, then a Broadway play, and then a movie that was released in 1969. Um, West Side Story is the story of uh, two rival gangs in New York and a love story where um, uh, a boy and a girl from the two rival gangs fall in love with each other, um, uh, the, the Sharks and the Jets, um, 1969. How many from my generation, how many remember West Side Story? Okay. Uh, it's being re-released this year in December, uh, produced by Steven Spielberg. So for you guys who've never heard of West Side Story, um, my guess is you're going to love it, and you're going to think, oh, West Side Story, this is great. Um, the thing of West Side Story is, um, it is a musical. There's a story, but like most musicals, like a musical, every musical, they break into song every now and then. And the song um, adds some life. It adds some character to all of this. Well, the old West Side Story, the new upcoming West Side Story, um, they are actually all retelling of the story by William Shakespeare of Romeo and Juliet. It's kind of a modern version of Romeo and Juliet told, and it's going to be retold again. But to add life and to add vividness to it, um, it's done as a musical. The story is going along, but there's songs in the middle of it. That's what happens in Judges chapters 4 and 5. Judges chapter 4 is the story. Judges 5, they break into song. It's kind of like a musical. Um, uh, It it is also a little bit like uh, my experience reading Lord of the Rings. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Um, The Lord of the Rings, um, the three original stories were written um, in the late 50s. And um, I started reading them uh, basically in the late 70s. And this is my copy, my hardback copy, after I wore out some paperback copies. Um, It's a 25th anniversary edition published in 1981 um, of The Lord of the Rings. And you can see they're tattered. They've been worn. Um, I've read them a number of times. Family members of mine have read through these. Um, Lord of the Rings, I really like it. I've I've read it a number of times. You can see I've I've worn it out. About 15 years ago, though, I came across something that was really fascinating. Um, This is the box for it. Um, It's the... British Broadcasting System, the BBC radio version of The Lord of the Rings. It's 25 CDs. Um, I was painting some bookcases out in our garage and started listening to them and ended up putting like six coats of paint on these bookcases because I just kept listening and listening and listening. You you laugh. There really are about six coats of paint on these. Um, But the British, the BBC version of The Lord of the Rings, 25 CDs, is fascinating because they're telling the story with actors. Actors are, are, you know, voicing all of the dialogue. But in Lord of the Rings, what 
if you've read it, you get to and you kind of go, oh, that's a poem. It's really a song. And in this version of it, they sing the songs. And it was absolutely captivating for me um, to hear this story that I've read so many times to then all of a sudden hear people singing the songs. Um, now, the songs are kind of weird. So Dawn would often, you know, come out in the, the garage and just go, are you OK? Um, but but it, it's absolutely fascinating because it's this combination of story and song. And it brings life to the whole thing. Hearing the songs sung really made the thing come alive. And so I was really prepared when, when the movies came along and, uh, you know, a little bit disappointed because sometimes when they would sing the songs, it wasn't as good as the BBC version. And, uh, but but I, I still loved it when you see it all come alive. The story in Judges 4 and 5 is so important that the Bible puts it in narrative and then it puts it in song, and the song really makes some things come alive. There's one strategic thing that that happens in the story that you don't know really what happened until you read the song in Judges chapter 5. So I want to encourage you, begin to read Judges 4 and 5. It's the story and a song. It's a Bible musical. It's Judges Glee. Um, So, um, it's, it's a great, great presentation of a fantastic story. The story is about Barak and Deborah. Um, we have been introduced to these uh, stellar judges so far. Some things questionable about them, but they're really, they kind of do exactly what the Lord wants them to do. Othniel is kind of the top of the, the, the heap. He, he um, has a great marriage with this woman named Oxka, who, who is spiritual, and she understands provision in chapter 1. She's, she's just a wonderful woman. They have a great relationship. Um, and then there's Ehud, who, who does what God wants him to do, but there's some questionable things that are going on. Last week, we looked at Shamgar, who has a very questionable background. His, his name is very questionable about his spirituality, but God is still using him. Um, but when we get to Barak, we're, we're really starting to take a step down. Now, it's with Barak, not Deborah. I don't have any problem with Deborah, but, but with Barak, we're taking a step down. Um, let me show you what Daniel Block says. He, he says this, The book of Judges portrays a degenerate Israelite society. Little that transpires in the book is normal or normative. The Canaanite oppression was Yahweh's response to the persistent idolatry of his people. It is remarkable that when they cry out and come to Deborah for a word from God concerning their problems, he answers. Um, This is the the fourth time now that we're going to read that they are cycling back into idolatry. It is this, this cycle of sin that we are seeing over and over again. But as I've said before, it's not a linear cycle. It's a cycle that gets worse. That's why we've got all this junk on the stage. That's why um, there are toilets on the stage, because it's not just this cycle that's rolling. It is a cycle that's going down. It's getting worse. This, this book is going to become, um, as we will see, a real toilet flush. As, as we've moved from, from Othniel to Ehud, and, and some of us kind of raised our eyebrows at, at, at his um, assassination of Eglon with some deceit. And then we get to Shamgar, whose um, name is son of Anath. That's a Canaanite god. Uh, now we're going to get uh, Barak. And 
um, he has an interesting thing that happens. Here's what Lawson Younger says. Um, Barak was not the judge that Ehud was, and certainly not the judge that Athniel was, but he was unquestionably better at fulfilling his role of judge than Gideon. Um, we're starting now to take our first kind of little mild bump down. <laughs> the, when we get to the next judge, it's going to take us a while to get there. When we get to the next judge, Gideon, we're going we're to take a significant step down. These, um, these 12 judges are arranged so that there are uh, six major judges and six minor judges to kind of represent the fullness of um, God's work within the entire nation. Uh, we're working with Barak, who's the judge, and Deborah. Let me give you a little bit of the, the background kind of geographically. All of the judges that we've worked with so far have been in the south. And in fact, Deborah herself is from the south. She's from the, uh, the hills of Ephraim. She's, uh, where she's from there is circled in, in yellow, and um, th- that's where she's from, from the south. But all of the events that we're looking at here take place in the north. Because up in the north, um, there has been um, a ruler who has established his uh, headquarters at um, the, the city that's far, far up there in the north. Um, and uh, Hatzor is the place where he is, is reigning. And he's got an army general who's in another town. But all of this is going to take place here in the north. And, and this northern city is really significant. Um, Barry Webb says this, Hatzor was a fortified city in the territory of Naphtali, approximately 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, close to what is now the Israel-Lebanon border. It's up really close to what we would think of as the Golan Heights. All of the areas that are in dispute in the book of Judges, um, where the Philistines are, that's the Gaza Strip. Uh, Where Moab and Ammon are, that's the West Bank. Uh, This area up here in the north, that's the Golan Heights. It's the same areas in dispute today. It was at one time, this Hetzor was one, at one time the most powerful city in, the northern, in northern Canaan, and its impressive ruins to, can still be seen today. There's a lot of archaeological work being done, and they have recognized that this is a huge city, a metropolitan city, and, it, and it's where all of this um, power base for the evil Jabin, king of the Canaanites, was uh, located. Um, if I zero in, here, the, the battle is going to take place way up here in the north. That's the Sea of Galilee. Um, Hatzor is there north of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jabin the king is. But he's got an army general who is over on the west coast. He's near uh, Mount Carmel. Um, now, the forces of Israel are going to rally on Mount Tabor, and the battle is going to ensue in the, in the river valley where the Kishon River is. Now, that's going to become important, but we don't understand how important it is until we get to chapter 5. In the song, you find out how really important all of this is. But this battle is going to take place up here in the north. Um, And Deborah's going to call Barak to assemble his troops on Mount Tabor. Um, Sisera, who's the army general, he's going to hear there on Tabor. He's going to rush down into the valley. Um, Barak is going to come out. They're going to rout them with the assistance of the Lord and his miraculous provision that happens. Chapter 5, we find out what that is. Um, and, but there's an escapee. And this escapee becomes the central pers- portion uh, of our story. Um, the way this thing is written um, leads me to give you a couple of resources. Number one, uh, Dr. Michelle Knight, who was here and we interviewed her, and she did a whole day seminar on, um, on reading biblical narratives. Um, 
I have in my office her 500-page dissertation on these two chapters. Uh, It's 500 pages. Um, As a kind of a sample of that, she's written an article that's four pages out at the Connection Center. It's posted online on on the Bible and how it uh, how it uh, addresses your heart and your mind in chapters four and five. Um, And and it's a really fascinating article to to see how how all of that works together. There's another article out there that is really just a one-page summary of a book uh, by Trimper Longman and Dan Reed called God as Warrior. I'm not recommending anybody buy the book. You may want to buy it. If God as Warrior is a book you want to buy, go for it. I just want you to know God is a warrior, (laughs) In our society, we have emasculated God, and we kind of made God this kind grandfather who's just passing out salvation to good people. That is not the biblical picture of God. God is a warrior. Um, he, he does judge sinful people, and he judges idolatry. Um, he is a warrior, and he is a warrior who conquers evil, and he does that primarily through Jesus Christ and his victory on the cross but that was a violent warrior victory. Um, and I want you to at least have the idea that our God is a warrior. Um, there's another article out there by Lawson Younger that really balances what we're going to see in this passage today, and that is God's sovereignty and willing vessels. Um, because God is sovereign in control of all of these stories. God is the one who's raising up Jabin, this evil king of the Canaanites, and his army general Sisera. God raises them up to judge his idolatrous people, but God is also calling people to be involved in the battle, and some people are more willing than others. Um, Some background for our story today. Um, let me give you our Mad Lib. The, the stories, these judges' stories, they all have a formula to them. Um, here's, here's the formula for the Barak and Deborah story. Uh, Barak is really the judge. Deborah is a prophet who calls Barak, but they kind of work together. And in fact, when you get to chapter 5, the song, they sing the song together. Um, but um, Barak and Deborah working together, she's, she's really the right woman in the wrong times. This is, I, I would not want to be one of the characters in the book of Judges, but she's the right woman uh, for these times. Here's our Mad Lib, though, how it, how it all plays itself out. Um, Israel sinned by doing evil again. Now, we don't know exactly what the evil is, um, but we can fill it in. We kind of know. This is the fourth time. Um, they did evil because they're idolatrous. They're worshiping other gods. But this, all it says here is they did evil again. Um, probably, and I'm going to show you, can be translated, they continued to do evil. They never stopped it. And the Lord judged them by subjecting them, this time to Jabin, king of Canaan. And that lasts for 20 years. Israel cries out to the Lord, who sent Barak, (laughs) who is supposed to be the judge, but as the story unfolds, you'll kind of realize there's some twists and turns, and Barak isn't the guy who, who does the work that needs to be done. But God called Barak. To, to do this. After 20 years, they're crying out. And again, let me just highlight, they're not repenting. They're just crying out. They're just so tired of 20 years of oppression of this king north of uh, their land in Hatzor, who's controlling the whole land now. Um, but God is going to deliver them through some really unique circumstances. And then the land is going to rest for 40 years. Um, we're not going to make it all the way through this story. But let's, let's jump in and see, first of all, the need for salvation. Um, they, 
they need a savior. And this, this whole book is a cycle of, of sin um, and the need for salvation. And God is the one who's going to be the one who brings salvation. But the salvation, I showed you last week, the, the salvation it comes because in chapter 3, by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, the nation of Israel is surrounded by Cush and Rishathayim on the north, by the Philistines on the west, by the Moabites and the Edomites in the, uh, in the east. They, they, they're surrounded by all of these nations. Um, today, the opposition is going to be even more significant because they are a superior force. They have better weapons, and, and it looks like they're assured of the victory. Um, the time frame that this is all taking place is, um, oh, in between the 1300s and 1000 BC. Um, it's the changing from the, from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And, and you're going to see that uh, the enemies here coming down from the north, they've got some superior weapons, and they've got a lot of them. Um, here's the story. Again, the Israelites continued to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them, again, God sovereignly, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in um, Harashorth Hagaoyim. It's, um, it's basically bitter city of the Gentiles. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. A um, couple things going on here. Um, these chariots uh, were weapons, uh, probably iron-plated wheels that allowed them to, to move better. Um, uh, it's going to become a problem. You'll find out in chapter 5 why. Um, but these, these chariots were an overwhelming advantage. I mean, think about what we've already seen. The Israelites have been disarmed by the Philistines. Um, th- that's why last week Shamgar had to use an ox goat. He's got to use a stick that he pokes the ox with to, to win his battle. They've been disarmed, and now the enemy has better tools. <laughs> Folks, I-, I think this is so clearly similar to the spiritual battles that we're in now. It looks like the world's got the better tools. They can win. They're in control of everything. <laughs> They've got the iron chariots out there. How are we going to win? Well, the only way we're going to win is, well, we've got God on our side. And, and he's, he's looking for people who will willingly accept the challenge to step up and fight in the battle for him. Uh, we, are, uh, we are outmanned, we are outnumbered, and we are not in any trouble because God is on our side. We need to engage in that battle. Now, let me move to another thing that is really important for me to highlight here. This is our fourth cycle. (laughs) Our fourth cycle in the middle of all this, the Israelites again continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. This is not the last time we're going to see this. Um, Del Ralph Davis, again, I, I love how he puts these things. Sin is a boring routine. The fast lane becomes a rut. Evil never lends itself to originality. Hence, there are two problems with sin, the slavery and the staleness. If you're locked in idolatry, if you're locked in sin, if there's, 
If there's something that's, that's going on in your life that you're recognizing, I got to break free of this. It's an idol in my life. It's an addiction in my life. There's something I've got to break free of. Um, you recognize it's just the boring thing you keep going back to again and again and again. And, and you're in this rut and you're trying to get out of it. I'm going I'm to highlight again. It's not just crying out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm so sick of this. It requires genuine repentance. If not, the rest of your life is just going to be, and again, Ken fell into idolatry. And again, Ken fell into idolatry. And God is gracious. But in chapter 10, God's eventually going to say in chapter 10, I'm not rescuing you anymore. To avoid that, what we need to do is recognize the slavery and the staleness of sin. It will not satisfy, but you have to repent, not just cry out, I'm sick of doing this. You've got to look at it and you've got to hate it and say, this is destroying me. I hate this sin. But then repentance is literally changing your allegiance. It's not just sick of this, I'm crying out, God, deliver me. It's not just that. Repentance is genuinely changing your allegiance and turning around and saying, I'm going to do what he's calling me to do. It's not just this is bad. It's my allegiance is now to the God of the universe. And I'm going to get involved in the things and my passions. I'm going to get out of that rut, but I'm going to get in another rut, a rut of serving God and and listening to his call and moving toward him. Um, And if you don't, if you don't do more than just cry out, oh, I'm so sick of my sin. If you don't do more than cry out, the cycle's just going to repeat. And eventually, Judges 10, God's going to say, I'm not saving you anymore. I'm going to let you experience the full effect of your sin. Um, we, we need salvation from ourselves because we keep getting in the same old ruts again and again. Now, the source of salvation that we're looking at is just really clear here. The source of the salvation is the Lord. You know, you struggle. I've even struggled with who's this story about? Is this story about Barak? He's called to be the judge, but he's hesitant. Is is this the Barak story? Um, Is this the Deborah story? She's the prophetess who tells him, hey, go get it. God's going to lead you. And he's hesitant. And then she says, listen, they're assembled. Go attack. Or is the story about J.L.? Dawn will tell you, I love this woman, J.L. And I, when, you, when you read the story, you just go, Ken, you're a little twisted. You like the woman who put the tit peg through his head. Yes! My, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is in, in this passage. I mean, in Judges 4, she took the tent peg, hammered it through his temple, so he died. Yeah! When we were pregnant, when Dawn was pregnant and we were trying, you know, is it going to be a boy? Is it going to be a girl? I was just begging her. If it's a girl, let's name her JL. Let's name her JL. She's like, you've lost your freaking mind. I love this one. But she, you know what? She's not the hero of the story. Deborah's not. Barack is not. JL is not. The Lord's the hero of this story. He's just using Deborah, an unexpected prophetess in the middle of a military context. He uses um, Barak, who's going to rout the army, a hesitant war general who's kind of whining, I'll do it if you'll go with me. 
and Jael, this woman who, who actually, her family's made an alliance with the enemy, and we don't know why she puts the temple, the tent peg through his head. We don't know. Neither the narrative or the story tell us her motivations. None of them are the hero. God's the hero of every true salvation story. He's going to use these people, unlikely people in every, in every instance. Here's how the story begins out. Uh, now, Deborah, her name means honeybee. By the way, you, you've got a honeybee and JL, her name means mountain goat. A bee and a mountain goat are going to do their, their job. Uh, now, Deborah, um, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, his, his name means torches, um, was uh, governing, she's ruling Israel at that time. Uh, she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, kind of halfway down the country in the little bit south. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, whose name means lightning. We're going to have to talk about that later. Um, I'm not so sure that it's not tongue-in-cheek. Um, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali. He's from up north. She's from the middle of the country. He's from up north. He's from Kadesh and Naphtali. And she says to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Um, it's a pretty clear charge. Take them and God is going to deliver them into your hands. To talk about these people for just a minute. Um, from the outside in Judges 4, uh, Michelle Knight says, the narrator casts Deborah primarily as a spokesman and a representative for Yahweh. Um, this isn't totally unheard of, but what makes it unique is this is a military context. Um, it, it's, not, it's not rare for women to play really significant roles in God's program. But after you see Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar... And later on, you're going to see Gideon and Samson. You've got all these men. This woman becomes one of the primary players, but she, she doesn't participate in the battle. She's really a spokesman and a representative for Yahweh. That's her role as a prophetess and, and a judge. She's settling these disputes. She's speaking for Yahweh. Um, not rare. Let me introduce you to um, two other prophetesses in the Old Testament. One of them you have heard of, one of them you certainly have not heard of. Um, the first one is Aaron's sister. Um, when the horses of Pharaoh came into the sea with his chariots and with his charioteers, Yahweh brought back upon them the waters of the sea, and the Israelites traveled on dry ground through the middle of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took her tambourine in her hand, and all of the women went out after her with tambourines and with dances. And Miriam answered, Sing to Yahweh because, of his high, because he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider are hurled into the sea. Miriam is a prophetess, Aaron's sister, and she, as a prophet, she's going to write this song in uh, the book of Exodus. It's, it's Miriam's song. She's, she's a prophetess, and she's, she's a spokesman. She speaks for the Lord. Um. Now, and I know the rest of you are waiting, but yeah, but what about that, the other prophetess? Yeah, I'll, I'll get to her. Here, here she is. Um, so Hilkiah, the priest, um, Ahikam, Akbar, I feel like I'm talking about WWF wrestlers. Um, Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, 
the son of Harhas, the keeper of the robes. Now, she was living in Jerusalem in the second district. Huldah. How many of you have ever heard of Huldah before? Anybody? By the way, I don't want to name any granddaughters or anything. Huldah. It's a weird name. Huldah's strange. Um, but, but she's very significant in bringing about a revival. She's a spokesman for the Lord. God's using these, these odd people <laughs> in odd times. And, and one of the really significantly odd ones is Barak. Let's just, I just want to introduce you to his response. Um, the surprise of the story is how, how God is going to have to use unconventional means because the guy you expect, Barak, is not going to show up. And by the way, this whole book is about God using unconventional means for salvation. And as we saw last week when we had communion, that's how God does it. He brings our salvation through the death of his own son. This is, the pattern is just started here. But, but let's focus on Barak for just a moment. Uh, Barak said to her, uh, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Um, do you see what Barak is doing here? God's given him a clear command. Here's, it's very clear. Here's what I need you to do. And he says, oh, if you'll go with me, I'll go. Now, the, the story is just full of surprises. Because as you're reading it at this point, the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hand of a woman. But I mean, at that point, you're going, yes, it's going to be Deborah. It's not even Deborah. There's another twist in the story. But Barak is hesitant. So now I'm going to um, basically skip to the end of my message and uh, see if I can get to um, some next steps. Where, where, where can we go from, from here? <laughs> Where do we go? Um, understanding that the Lord is the sovereign hero of every true salvation story, and we mess it up with our idolatry, and when we just cry out and we don't fully repent, God has to come through again and again and again. But in, in this salvation story that God is using, that God is telling, um, he uses us. Um, and so I, I do want to, let you know that God isn't hindered. <laughs> He's not surprised by reluctance on our part. But if there's reluctance on your part, um, God's going to move on. He can still use you. Barak's going to play a part, but he's not going to be the one who gets the glory. Um, the mission statement of Fellowship Bible Church is this. Um, fellowship invites people into God's story. It goes on with some other really good stuff. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Fellowship invites people into God's story. This is God's story. It's not our story. It's not Deborah's story. It's not Barack's story. It's not JL's story. It's God's story. And he wants you to get in that story. And that may be at this point for you to stop crying out about your sin and repent change your allegiance and say, I'm just not frustrated with it. I'm not, 
annoyed with the rut and the staleness of it. I hate my sin, and I am going to turn and change my allegiance. And I'm not just going to hate it. I'm going to actually engage in passionately doing what God wants me to do. God may be calling you into that story through repentance. God may be calling you into that story and telling you to stop hesitating. No more, well, if this happens, then I'll do it. If Deborah will go with me and hold my hand, no more of that. No more, you know, well, if I get a raise at work, if I get some time off, if I, if I. Stop your ifs. Get involved in God's story. And, you know, it may be just, you just say, I don't know if this is the real thing, but I'm going to come and walk that line a bunch of times over the next two days. I'm not recruiting for that. We need everybody here. I'm not recruiting for that. But I want you to get off the bench. Stop your hesitating. Repent of your sin. Eliminate your ifs. Eliminate your, when this happens, then I'll do it. Just start doing what you know God wants you to do. Get involved in his story. He's telling a great big story. He's the hero of it. It's an amazing story of grace and redemption and restoration and his rule. And he invites us into that story and you get to be a player in it. We get to do this, folks. Repent of the muck and the mire that keeps you out of the story. Eliminate your ifs and your whens. It's a great story, and he's invited us to be a part of it somehow. Father, overwhelm us with the greatness of your salvation story. Lord, you tell it in such compelling ways that are, um, that are inspiring, that are challenging, that are convicting. Father, however we're experiencing that story, I pray that you would... Show us the doors you want us to walk through. Whether it's a door of repentance or a a door of um, engagement, a a door of continuation, a door of um, steadfastness and endurance. Lord, wrap us into your story and its greatness. We ask you to do that for your glory because it's your story. You're the hero. It's about your son and proclaiming his name. We ask that in his name. Amen.